Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Jana Alhashash, and I am an associate professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. I'm a member of the AGA Clinical Practice Update Committee and will be your host for today's episode on the AGA Inside Scope podcast series. We'll be discussing AGA CPU on lifestyle modification using diet and exercise to achieve weight loss in the management of NAFLD. I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Heather Patton, who is professor of medicine at UCSD and chief of GI at the VA in San Diego healthcare system. She is also chair of the hepatology field advisory board for the National Gastroenterology and Hepatology Program Office of the Veterans Healthcare Health Administration. In this episode, we are going to provide highlights on the best practice advice from the CPU to help clinicians discuss with their patients about how to implement lifestyle changes to manage NAFLD and also to increase awareness about this condition. To access the CPU, please visit AGA's website as, at gastro.org. We're joined today by two great guests, Dr. Zubair Yunusi and Dr. Joseph Lim. Dr. Yunusi is the president of the Innova Medicine as well as professor and chairman of the Department of Medicine at Innova Fairfax Medical Campus in Virginia. And Dr. Joseph Lim is the past chair of the CPU committee, professor of medicine, director of the clinical hepatology section and vice chief of the section of digestive diseases at Yale University School of Medicine. It's really great to have everyone here today. And we'd like to start by talking about NAFLD and why it's so important and why we're talking about it today. So Dr. Yunusi, can you give us a little update on why we're speaking about this important topic? Thank you very much again for uh, the invitation to join this podcast. Well, I think we're talking about NAFLD because of its burden is so large and increasing. Um, we have the most recent data from meta-analysis that's published this month in December of 2022 suggests that the global prevalence of NAFLD is about 30%. And when you look at the progressive form of NAFLD, the prevalence may be a little bit lower, 5 to 6%, but still it's about three times or even four times higher than the prevalence of hepatitis C in the United States. So it's a very common disease, and it's driven by the uh, sort of the global epidemic of, um, of obesity and type 2 diabetes. And in that context, it, it, about you know small proportion of patients, but still a large number of people develop cirrhosis and liver complications. And in addition to liver complications, NAFLD is a systemic disease, so it's associated with cardiovascular mortality, which in fact is the number one cause of death in these patients, extrahepatic cancers like colon cancer, and also a disease that's been really under-recognized, which is sarcopenia, which is uh, associated with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and, and really impacts a prognosis. When you look at patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, there is actually a global increase in mortality related to cirrhosis of NAFLD in almost every region of the world from either cirrhosis or liver cancer. And this is now in the United States very much shown by the fact that it is currently the number two indication for liver transplantation in the United States. And in fact, if you look at patients, for female patients who are listed for, for liver transplantation or those who are older than 55, it's the number one indication for liver transplantation. In fact, the most recent data from the UNOS database that we have looked at 
it's almost becoming uh, the most common indication for liver transplantation among those who are listed for liver cancer in the United States. So it has major clinical impact. Now, in addition to the clinical impact, it also has a great deal of impact on quality of life and patient-reported outcome. And finally, when you look at the economic burden of NAFLD, as it's growing, it's it's huge in the United States, as well as other countries in Europe, as well as Asia, that's been looked at. So it's a disease that has that impacts every aspect of our uh, individual patients in our, and also, also our society. Thank you. That sounds incredible. Dr. Lim, can we blame all this on the obesity problem that's happening? Are there any other factors that are making NAFLD more and more prevalent? Thanks for the opportunity to discuss this issue. That's a very important question. Uh, before addressing, I do just want to briefly mention that I want to acknowledge the efforts of our colleague, Dr. Kathleen Corey, who is a hepatologist for MGH, uh, who contributed to, uh, to the development of the CPU dressing uh, the management of fatty liver with a diet exercise as part of lifestyle modification. But to address your question, uh, uh, this is incredibly complex because we recognize that similar to other conditions, that there is a complex interplay between genetics, environment, and other metabolic contributors that underlie fatty liver, both with the presence and absence of the development of inflammation or state of hepatitis and the development of fibrosis as a consequence of that chronic inflammation. And so we believe that there are probably a number of factors, particularly a genetic polymorphism that have already been identified, many others that have not yet been identified, that probably play a very important role at the individual patient level in terms of the presence and the pathogenesis of fatty liver. And number two, I think that there are a number of environmental factors, particularly related to the the types of foods that we're eating, the processing of foods, potential role of microplastics that may really have important impact on metabolic regulation, metabolic changes in terms of how we process nutrients that may also intentionally lead to a higher predisposition or consideration for fatty liver development. These are still subject to ongoing investigation in terms of their role at the individual patient level, but as certainly from an epidemiologic perspective, uh, must be studied because these are likely important contributors to the growing incidence, prevalence, and pathogenesis of NASH. And I think we'll have increasing role in terms of how we approach management. Thank you. Thanks. Great points. How do we increase awareness about this condition, not just amongst physicians themselves, but amongst patients also? Can you give us some examples of what you do in your institutions to increase awareness among the doctors who see these patients first, the primary care physicians, endocrinologists? What have you implemented to increase awareness? Perhaps we can ask Dr. Patton, then move to Dr. Yunusi and Dr. Lim. Well, this is an important point. Uh, We know from various studies that recognition of NAFLD in practice is far below what we anticipate it to be based on the the prevalence data that Dr. Yunasi shared with us. Uh, If we look at surrogate markers such as diagnostic codes, and I think there's a number of reasons behind this. This is often a relatively silent condition in terms of not manifesting uh, significant symptoms that would bring this to medical providers' attention and certainly variable impact on labs that we look to to help screen for liver disease uh, on the liver blood panel. In terms of means of addressing this lack of awareness or suboptimal awareness, I think this is going to require a real partnership between specialists in GI and hepatology 
and our primary care and endocrinology colleagues to help them understand uh, patients who are at risk for this condition and how to provide some risk stratification uh, for patients identified with fatty liver and which patients in particular need to be connected with specialty care. Thank you very much for that. Dr. Yunasi, any other awareness modalities that you implement in your institution? I think it was, uh, you know, Dr. Patton actually mentioned a, a lot of these, but I think, you know, we just have to look at different levels of awareness. So at the patient level, we have to have a strategy to include patient group, and they have not been involved in the fatty liver disease arena for a long time. I think their input and insight would be extremely important. Then, of course, in the provider side, I think the awareness among hepatologists and gastroenterologists has been increasing over the past decade. And endocrinologists are now coming on board with the new ACE guideline, American Association of Clinical Endocrinology. I think we we, we need to focus on edu- educating and, and working and, and partnering with our primary care physicians, as well as our cardiologists, where they see a lot of these patients. And then you move into national policy makers. And I think it's going to be important to make them aware of this important non-communicable liver disease. And then ultimately, it has to be a global issue. We have to make sure that the World Health Organization actually addresses this. In fact, if you look at all the documents related to obesity complications or diabetes complications, NAFLD has never been mentioned. And there is a huge effort going on right now to actually make this an important non-communicable disease at the level of WHO, where some of the policies are decided and and, and that can impact others. So it's going to have to have different sort of approaches to different stakeholders. But as we move forward to, to address the number one cause of liver disease in the world, it's becoming that, we need to have all the important stakeholders involved. Perfect. Thank you so much. Dr. Lim, anything else to add? Uh, yes, just very briefly, I, I agree with comments raised by my colleagues here. I think that uh, the multi-based approach is absolutely essential at the level of the primary care clinician, all the way through the specialists, but not just gastroenterology and hepatology, but certainly at the level of endocrinologists, cardiologists, bariatric physicians, etc. At the end of the day, you know, we're dealing with what we the proverbial tip of the iceberg in regards to the burden fatty liver. We're only really seeing the proportion that already have evidence of advanced disease uh, with uh, sigmoid fibrosis as well as comorbid metabolic diseases. Uh, but the reality is that there's likely going to be a significant growth in the proportion of patients who have risk factors for fatty liver. And it's going to be incumbent upon us to partner with our colleagues at each of these different areas to look at risk stratification as the first step of patients who have fatty liver among those who are at risk those who are obese, those with type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome. And I think as part of that, the AGA has uh, articulated a very clear clinical pathway that was just published a couple of years ago that tries to put forth at least one model uh, for multidisciplinary approach for identification and risk stratification to identify the high-risk patients who require NASH-directed therapy. Thank you. And thank you for mentioning risk stratification, as this was the next point that we'd like to discuss here. When we see patients with NAFLD, how do we risk stratify these patients? What are modalities that we have that we can implement to risk stratify which patients are going to progress, have a worse outcome, and who will most likely remain in a more or less uh, non-advanced state? Can you comment on that a little more? Of course, yes. So I think that I'm happy to provide at least one framework or perspective. And also my colleagues, I'm sure, will be able to share their thoughts on how this is optimally performed. Uh, but I think that at the population level, I think that the 
two initial steps that have been put forth. There's first looking at FIB4, a commonly used uh, serum assay or serum index, rather, looking at age, AST, ALT, and platelet count. Among those who have FIB4 scores less than 0.3 generally are viewed as very low risk uh, for significant disease as a consequence of uh, NAFLD. Uh, those with a very high score, greater than 2.67, are, are likely to have significant disease and therefore will require further uh, evaluation and management. And those who are intermediate and, um, between 1.3 to 2.67 are deemed as indeterminate risk, meaning that these patients may potentially be at risk but require further risk stratification. Depending on availability, uh, the most commonly recommended modality is a transit elastography, looking at a measurement of liver stiffness measurement. And generally, the, the risk that we're looking for is, is it less than 8 kilopascals, 8 to 12 kilopascals, or greater than 12 kilopascals. Those who are less than 8 are viewed as low risk, greater than 12, high risk. And then, of course, those in between are indeterminate risk who may require further evaluation by a specialist. And But the principle behind this is very clear, is that using non-invasive tools that are commonly available is really trying to identify that smaller proportion of patients with NFLD who are likely to be at risk for both liver, cardiovascular, and other metabolic events. And so um, this use of NITs or non-invasive tests are, are optimally used to identify that subset of patients. Dr. Yunasi, any other comments? I think the only other comment I would, I mean, there, I just want to mention that there is an opportunity to risk stratify at the very, very first line of seeing the patient. So if you have a patient who is pre-diabetic or diabetic, according to the established guideline for with hemoglobin A1C, or if you have a patient that has two other components of metabolic syndrome, you know, they have visceral obesity, they have, type, they have uh, hypertension or dyslipidemia, or they have had a uh, you know, chronically elevated liver enzyme in the absence of alcohol use or other liver diseases, those are the patients that we need to actually assess uh, and, and that actually cuts down on the number of patients that you need to assess. You really need to go after the low-hanging fruit, as they would say, with patients with highest potential risk for having um, not only NAFLD, but it's not really a NAFLD that's important. It's what's called high-risk NAFLD. And the high-risk NAFLD are those patients that would develop adverse outcomes. And how do we determine it? Using the for as uh, Dr. Lim suggested, and of course, and in our practice, Transient astrography is what we can use, but increasingly, if you are, we are asking others, like primary care physicians and endocrinologists, to actually be engaged here. They're not going to have a lot of access to transient astrography. So enhanced liver fibrosis test, which is a blood test, is now FDA approved, and you, one can use this. And as uh, Joe just uh, looked, you know, sort of the, described the risk stratification, that's the way that we actually use it. And I just want to make sure that even those patients that would before have a quote unquote, potentially high, would be at high risk for, for adverse outcome with a score of more than 2.67. We still probably, I would confirm that with a transelastrography or an ALF test to make sure. And then at the end of the day, for, for some patients, you have contradictory sort of numbers. I mean, you've got a, a FIP4 of 1.3 and the patient has all the risk factors, but the transelastrography is low. That's where sort of the other tests that I would call sort of the tertiary tests like an MR elastography or even a liver biopsy could come. I think the lower role of liver biopsy now, now for the becoming, is becoming less and less relevant. You still have to do a liver biopsy for clinical trials, for example. It's required. On the other hand, in clinical practice, I think we only do liver biopsy when we have sort of this, this discrepancies or we're worried about another diagnosis that can be superimposed, like autoimmune hepatitis at the top of 
fatty liver disease. So that's the only place where I would do the liver biopsy. Otherwise, I follow what Dr. Lim suggests. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This is extremely helpful for gastroenterologists such as myself who don't subspecialize in, in liver disease, but see a lot of patients with NAFLD also. Let's switch gears and talk about how to manage these patients. We see patients in clinic all the time with NAFLD. We risk stratify them, but what do we advise them? And as you know, most physicians tell our patients, you need to lose weight and you need to exercise. But I'm going to talk to Dr. Patton a little more. Maybe she can tell us a little more about the diet, what types of diet you advise for your patients, and tell us a little more about goals that you set for your patients. Do you work with a dietitian, et cetera? Thank you, Jana. So important question, the prescription, if you will, for lifestyle that I recommend for my patients with NAFLD across the spectrum of severity is one that focuses on the dietary composition, and number one, number two, on physical activity or exercise, and number three, with a weight loss goal that is uh, targeted towards estimation of underlying disease severity with regarding where they fall on the spectrum of, of NAFLD. For nutrition, I typically will advise a Mediterranean-type diet, and this is very well detailed in the AGA uh, CPU that we're reviewing here uh, regarding the data that support this as uh, right now the type of dietary intervention that has the best uh, support for improving patients with fatty liver disease. It's very easy to say uh, someone should uh, change how they're eating, increase their physical activity, uh, or lose weight. But in practice, it uh, can be very, very challenging to help support our patients in being successful on these fronts. And so this is where I think implementation science has an important role in bridging the gap between what we see as evidence that supports best practices for care for these patients and actually helping the patient you're sitting with in clinic to be successful. I don't think that there is uh, necessarily one right or optimal or correct approach to this, but would say that when possible, involving a multidisciplinary team, uh, such as uh, registered dietitians or uh, patients as, as often they do have uh, physical limitations, back pain, joint problems uh, may need some assistance from physical therapy or, or other experts to help determine a means of increasing physical activity that is accessible to them uh, and behavioralists who can help with changing uh, habits that are very, very difficult for us as human beings to modify the way that we eat and how active we are in a way that's going to be sustainable over the long run. Agree. And you touch on a very important point. A lot of the patients that are seen in clinic who suffer from NAFLD have joint problems, have back problems, and are usually not able to exercise as vigorously as would be recommended in the textbook. Dr. Lim, any other recommendations that you have for your patients? Well, I think that uh, as noted by Dr. Patton, uh, there's probably no one right method for each patient, so, or that's, there's no one size fit all. And it does require a careful attention to a patient's core medical conditions, uh, functional capacity, as well as their history with regards to weight and other attempts at weight loss. Recognize that many of our patients may have been struggling with overweight or obesity, often for many years, if not decades. 
And so I think that uh, trying to take a very careful history is a very important principle in general medicine, but that's particularly true in this context. Now, regards to our targets, I think that's where our uh, CPU did try to set some uh, guidelines or guidance uh, that uh, sets the parameters that we believe may be evidence-based. And I think towards that point, we have pretty strong evidence at this point that weight loss of 7 to 10% may have meaningful benefits in terms of histologic NASH resolution and fibrous improvement, um, I think 10% being the target. And that's something that actually is should be a source of encouragement for many of our patients who are morbidly obese. So if a given patient weighs, let's say, 350 pounds, obviously they're not going to achieve normal weight anytime soon, even with a relatively aggressive weight loss intervention. But that's not what's required to have meaningful benefits metabolically and for their liver endpoints. 10% or 35 pounds is really the target that we try to articulate to patients. And that's something that can be very encouraging or less, at least less dispiriting, at least for setting realistic targets. Now, regards to the caloric intake, uh, this at the end of the day is very challenging because I think the minimum reduction of calories is somewhere between 500 to 1,000 kcals per day. Um, and that's um, not easy for many patients to adjust to. But the, for clinically significant weight loss, uh, we articulate that the target hypocaloric diet should be somewhere between 1,200 to 1,500 kilocalories per day. Uh, that is very challenging to achieve and sustain long term. But I think that's where the principle of um, multidisciplinary approach is absolutely necessary. We as clinicians generally are not routinely trained in the methodology for guiding patients in achieving this weight loss goal. And that's why I'm sure each of us have, at each of our institutions have a different way of handling this. But we have nutritionists, dietitians, physiologists, health psychologists that look at maladaptive eating patterns. I have patients who can't just have one slice of pie. They have to eat the whole pie in one sitting, as an example. I try to identify those barriers. But then also looking at practical ways of implementing these calorie targets. Uh, the next step that we do address is looking at specific types of, of diets. And um, my colleague here may have additional comments on this, but I think in our document, we do articulate that we do have some degree of evidence for the Mediterranean diet, which really focuses on vegetables, fruits, seafood, really with significant limitation of uh, red meat, um, carbohydrates, sh sugars, uh, et cetera. And we think that this may be one useful approach for appropriate patients. But other diets that have been looked at, including ketogenic diets, uh, DASH diets, intermittent fasting, the evidence base is still quite limited. And so uh, we, I, I certainly personally have been very cautious in terms of endorsing any of these alternative diets, at least in the context of fatty liver disease. Thank you. How about the new weight loss medications? Dr. Yunusi, can you comment on what you've been recommending for your patients? Have you been recommending the medications there's also other medications that address other problems with liver disease. The most important aspect of, of managing this disease, which has not been carefully at least implemented, and implementation science will help here, is to remember what was said here, that you have to actually consider lifestyle intervention as a prescription. And that has to be individualized, meaning that you have to understand what is the pattern of physical capacity and nutritionists and what are other risk factors that exist. So it's going to have to be prescribed. Number two, it has to be individualized. And number three, it has to be multidisciplinary. And in the context of you know what we have learned from COVID, this is a perfect place where all the institutions or, or medical centers that have the capacity 
to create a multidisciplinary sort of team that doesn't have to exist within the same roof that could come in and and uh, and uh, work on multidisciplinary sort of fashion. And finally, close monitoring. Now, if you actually do this for a while with patients and they still don't lose the 10% weight that Dr. Lim suggested, then you have to understand that there are other things what we, we should do simultaneously uh, in a, or in addition to this. For example, there are drugs that are actually approved for managing this, the risk factors, uh, type 2 diabetes. Pugilidazone is actually approved for, for managing uh, pre-diabetes and diabetes and should be used because there is evidence that it may actually improve liver histology. Semaglutide is a drug that's been approved for, for managing type 2 diabetes and obesity, although not for NASH. But in that context, I think if you manage the risk factors of type 2 diabetes and, and obesity, you will get there. So in, in, in addition to this, there are other, of course, more invasive approaches for people who actually fail everything. But, you know, I, I would remember that bariatric endoscopy, bariatric, especially bariatric surgery, is an option for people who are actually very obese and diabetic. And in fact, if you actually resolve type 2 diabetes post-bariatric surgery, NASH resolves and, and fibrosis improves. So there, and of course, there, there is probably about half a dozen of drugs that are in phase three clinical trials for NASH. But before getting to those, we have a number of things that we can use, including drugs that are currently approved for treatment of NASH, uh, for treatment of, of, of NASH risk factors that mean we can utilize. Excellent. Very nice. And I know that it's been a, a very hot topic, weight loss medications. Everybody's interested in taking them to help with their NAFLD, help with their weight and other comorbid conditions. What do you recommend to your patients in terms of alcohol? Because this is a very recurrent question, right? So people who have NAFLD, do you tell them to absolutely stop all alcohol or do you allow them a little bit? And what's a little bit? There's certain rules in terms of how much alcohol I would provide to, you know, I would allow our patients. If patients have more advanced liver disease, they're, they're pre-cirrhotic or cirrhotic, I just tell them they cannot, they cannot drink alcohol. And I think it, it, one has to remember that the damaging impact of alcohol is actually enhanced and exaggerated in the presence of type 2 diabetes and obesity, and especially the two of them. So those are risk factors for damaging impact of alcohol. Now, in terms of those who have early disease, I still discourage them from using persistent excessive alcohol use or binge drinking. I mean, if someone goes in and has 10 drinks on the weekend, that's actually as bad as actually drinking two or three drinks a day. The threshold that we use for the studies is two drinks for men and one drink for women per day, or about seven drinks for, for women per week. But I think in general, having sort of excessive alcohol use in, in one setting is going to be damaging, and especially for those who have more more aggressive, more advanced liver disease. Yeah, it is interesting that uh, the European societies, ESL, ESD, and ESAO, as well as ASLD, uh, do not entirely um, restrict alcohol completely. They say that light alcohol consumption may be permissible, but the Asian Pacific Society strictly basically uh, suggests the absence of alcohol altogether. And I think in terms of the available evidence, um, I, I think that there is probably some mix. Uh, um, and I think that but my personal approach is just very simple that, you know, we know that alcohol can be contributing meaningfully to liver injury uh, that's vulnerable in the context of established liver disease. And so I just, I generally favor a zero alcohol policy uh, with rare exceptions where, you know, patients who drink a few drinks a month or just on holidays, I think that may be okay. But generally, uh, complete avoidance is preferred. I'm curious what my other colleagues recommend to their patients. 
Yeah, agreed with both of you. I typically will phrase it to my patients that the optimal amount of alcohol use when you have an underlying liver condition that may not be driven by alcohol is uh, truly zero. Nice. So thank you so much for excellent discussion today. If you were to leave one take-home message, I know this is a lot of pressure, one take-home message to our listeners, to your colleague physicians about this topic. We'll start with Dr. Lim. What would it be? Uh, Well, I think that from a public health perspective, uh, it's really identifying uh, at-risk or high-risk patients for NASH and to do at least some initial risk stratification so we can identify the patients who really do have real disease. That would be my number one take-home. Fantastic. Dr. Yunosi? I would say that finding the high-risk patients through non-invasive tests that are available and providing them truly with what we have available in a in a using a care pathway that uses a multidisciplinary team is the only way to address this disease on a sort of a patient and clinical level. But there is, of course, also a lot of public health issues that we need to address at the national and global level. Thank you. Dr. Patton? Well, thank you for giving me the uh, last word here in this esteemed group. Uh, I would add that um, just because something is difficult doesn't mean that it isn't important and worthy of our efforts as providers for our patients. And we all recognize that achieving lifestyle modification is challenging for our patients. There are a lot of barriers that exist, but this is critically important for this patient population, both for their liver outcomes and their cardiovascular and and cancer outcomes. And so it is our obligation to, within our own care practice, figure out how we can optimize support for our patients uh, with this uh, highly prevalent condition uh, to try to offset what we are seeing as major burden in um, chronic liver disease, cardiovascular disease, and cancer. Agree. Thank you so much for great take-home messages. Dr. Yunosi, I saw you go off mute. Oh, thanks for including me. Of course. So everybody, thank you so much for a great discussion. And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in to today's episode with Dr. Heather Patton, Dr. Joseph Lim, and Dr. Zubair Yunusi. For additional resources on NASH, please refer to the Clinical Practice Update Expert Review on Lifestyle Modification and Medical Weight Loss in the Management of Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease, which was published in Gastroenterology the journal. To access, please go to www.gastrojournal.org and search lifestyle modification and medical weight loss in the management of NAFLD. Thank you very much to the group for joining us today and for your valuable advice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody. And great working with everybody. Same here. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.